Farmers are the most generative people I've ever met, generative and generous people I've ever met. And by that, I mean people who know how to um, work the magic of putting um, life into the ground and, and generating food and then generating culture around that and community around that. So there is so much power in farmers in terms of being the, the heart and soul of our food system, what nurtures and nourishes all of us. Over 80% of the biodiversity on the entire planet is tended by less than 5% of the population, which is indigenous people. What is wild is that not only do indigenous people tend the most biodiversity around them, they also tend the most biodiversity inside them. So the diseases of inflammation we see in modern society actually don't exist in, in indigenous people who are living and in their managed ecosystems. They don't have cardiovascular disease. They don't have cancer. They don't have Alzheimer's the disease. They don't have hypertension. They don't have diabetes. They are a society that is deeply inflamed. How do we get back into balance with our ecosystems? It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, one of the things that is coming up more and more in conversations we're having on Farm to Table Talk is the shared concern with the earth. How do we care for the earth? There's a lot of perspectives, but I'll tell you, we're going to have a perspective today that is very unique because my guest today is a medical doctor, uh, a mother, a musician tied to a lot of things and very concerned about how we're taking care of the earth and connects it to so many things that we need to be talking about that I'm just really happy to welcome Dr. Rupa Maria. Dr. Maria, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thank you. I think you've left out probably the most relevant um, identifier, which is that I'm married to a farmer. Um, oh, so you know what? I thought about that. And actually, I was going to start saying that because I was thinking I was, I was working on alliteration. And, and I thought, you know, I could have the mother uh, and mus musician and medical doctor and married to a farmer. And, and I just had I just had a hard time because I thought the M's were good to kind of get all of them. You are married to a farmer. I, yeah, and that's um, really been um, my husband is uh, Benjamin Farr. He's an organic farmer, and he has really inspired so much um, of my own understanding of health and deepening my understanding of health and wellness, not just of humans, um, but but all creatures and all um, the, you know, in the soil and in the water and um, all of that. Yeah. Because you've even talked about how this can reach into the microbiome, our own microbiome, the microbiome of the soil, uh, microorganisms. My goodness, we're going to have to have a very, very long podcast. I'm afraid to <laughs> cover, cover all that ground. Uh, and, and I believe too, your, your parents came from the Punjab area of, of India when they came here. You were born here in California, though. Yeah, I was born in unceded, occupied Ohlone territory, what is now called Mountain View. I'm living in right now the territory of Huchin, um, which is also Ohlone territory, um, which is now called Oakland, California. 
And um, I have, you know, I work as a physician in the ancient village of Yalamu on Ramatishaloni land, which is now called San Francisco. Um, but for 10,000 years, the people who um, lived here and still do live here um, tended the ecosystems here in ways that enhance the vitality and biodiversity of everything around them. And when Europeans arrived to this place, um, a couple hundred years ago, just the amount of topsoil that was present, let's say, in the San Joaquin Valley, the richness of the um, the topsoils and the fertility that was there from the ranging animals and from the pulsations of the rivers and the movement of the salmon and the damming of the beavers. So there were these very sophisticated ecosystems that the people had evolved with for thousands of years and were in deep relationship. And within 200 years, those ecosystems have been largely destroyed. The topsoil has disappeared. I think the valley is sinking now several dozens of feet um, because of the way we extract groundwater. Um, and the animals, most of the wildlife are gone. Um, and so how do we um, come to understand this moment that we're in and what role we can all play um, with regards to how we take care of the earth and how we take care of each other? And that's really um, the central um, area of my work and investigation as a doctor, as a mother. And this year I'll actually be starting to farm with my husband. Um, we're starting a project called Farming is Medicine um, on the San Mateo coast. You know, I don't usually introduce people by saying anything about their heritage, but in your particular case, the reason I mentioned Punjab was that they uh, had some uh, experience lately having conversations with some of the farmers that were protesting uh, Indian policy and the Punjab um, Punjabis. Yeah. And from that area in particular, there's a lot of farmers that came to California. And, and yes. there are so many farmers in, in the West Coast, and they're across the country, too, but certainly yeah. here. And we had an experience here in Sacramento where there were, I don't know, thousands that ended up going to um, a, a protest uh, that circled, had tractors and trucks and all sorts of things. So I had an interesting conversation with them. And and seeing, even in this particular case, expats that were living here in the United States and farming in the United States, but feeling the connection to India uh, and getting people around the world to, to be concerned about policies happening there. It's, it's an interesting connection, and uh, although no more interesting than what you just said, going back 10,000 years of the, of the connections with who was here before we all got here, including the people that moved here from India, or in my case, Ireland. Uh, oh, wow, okay. Yeah. yeah, no. So we, um, yeah, so we have common, um, common roots as peoples who have been colonized. So the reason my family moved here is because, you know, $10 billion of wealth was extracted through colonialism from my country, from India, um, by the British over, you know, several hundred years of colonial rule, brutal colonial oppressive rule. And the systems that are in place today, you know, people will say that India is a post-colonial um, state, nation state. But it isn't quite true because when the British left, they left their colonial structures in place. And what the farmers are fighting today in India, which is so inspiring, which is the largest um, rebellion against global capitalism that we've seen um, in the history of capitalism is happening right now in India and it's being moved by farmers. Um, and so the farmers from Punjab are being joined by farmers from all over um, the country. And um, it's beautiful to see that um, people rise up and, and understand the value of the labor of farmers and the value of our food and how um, things have been skewed by policies that 
go on to advantage these multinational corporations um, that come into our communities and then dictate how we should farm and and um, you know what chemicals we should put or not put and and these are things that you know it's it's a great time to be having a you know international conversation about our food and our safety and our health and our well-being um, but I'm very proud of my Punjabi um, uh, relatives out there who are holding it down and yes I come from a long lineage of um, farmers in in that region well I'm going to take a shot at trying to get included in your club because uh, my family also had a grudge against the English because they were Scots that were transplanted to Northern Ireland and, uh, you know, several hundred years ago and into the plantation of Ireland where they were uh, in almost slaves the way that they were controlled. And then they were all shipped back over to Scotland. And then they came back over to Northern Ireland again and they were forced uh, and controlled by some English landowners that, that they were there. Finally, they ended up making the way to America and started started farming. Uh, but there was so anyway, I feel I feel like there's a certain um, camaraderie there that there was a heritage that there was a colonialism that had an effect, uh, even in Europe, not necessarily oh, especially in Europe. That's in where North America. Yeah, that's really where it started. I mean, Ireland was the first British colony. Um, and and I think that what we see with colonialism is a fundamental alteration of traditional relationships that kept us healthy. And this is in the book that I'm just finishing up with, um, Raj. And we're looking at how the fundamental relationships, the traditional relationships that peoples have had all over the world um, that have evolved over time, um, relationships to land, relationships to foods, relationships to seeds with one another, um, have been altered through colonialism in ways that damage these critical relationships. And the outcome of that damage is inflammation in our bodies um, with the diseases that we see in modernity, um, which, you know, we see cardiovascular disease, um, asthma, um, autoimmune disease, inflammatory bowel disease, Alzheimer's, cancer. We're now coming to learn that all of these diseases have in their origin inflammation and um that that we're we're also understanding that those things around us are influencing our immune system um, to provoke these um, nonstop in, inflammatory responses, um, and so that um, what what role farming plays with that in terms of how the soil is tended and how our food is created. Um, has been, you know, a really remarkable discovery, which we know we go to in great detail about in, in the book. But that conversation between microbes and soil and water and animals um, and people, these are really long, ancient dialogues, and they've all been reordered um, in the last 200, 300 years. Um, and our bodies are suffering the impact of it. And you can see it more disproportionately um, expressed in those people who are suffering under the brutal grind of colonialism today. Um, and that in the United States, COVID is laying this all very bare, is brown and black and you know Latino and indigenous people are um, suffering the most um, from that. And that's not you know because of any biological inferiority of people or even lack of access to healthcare. It is the um, combined process of hundreds of years of preconditioning the immune system through social oppression. Um, and so how can we 
reorder our society, reorder our relationships along um, ways that we know can promote better health. That is what I, that's what I'm very interested in. And I believe that it has to start with healing those things that have been broken through colonialism and imagining new ways of being with our food and being with our um, food growing systems that are not only enhancing of the earth um, in that um, not only enhancing of our climate or enhancing of our soil or enhancing of the water, but healing those relationships that were broken through genocide um, and that are continue to be broken through systems of racism and oppression. And so if we are what we eat, and I do believe that we are right now, what we are eating is, is um, developed through systems that generate inflammation. And we are a society that is deeply inflamed. And so it's a great time to stop and deeply think about how can we create something better? Um, because I don't think we want to go down this road of, you know, where this, this, the logical extension of where this leads to, I think we're, we have the capacity to be um, better than that and to heal those things that have been divided and to heal the land um, that has been abused. Boy, that is a lot to think about. And I want to go back when you started this, you, when you first said inflammation, I think people were probably saying, do I hear her correctly? Because it could have been like information. And so uh, it is inflammation, I-N-F-L-A-M-M-A-T-I-O-N. And one of the things that you have said before that I've, I've seen online uh, is that we're finding more and more of the ills that we have today are the inflammatory response that you, you go through kind of the history of, of disease and, and people were looking at bacteria and they were looking at all these other things. But of late, uh, so, so many times the culprits inflammation and you get a whole list of diseases I could let you articulate that seem to be related to inflammatory response. Is that the reason that there's so much more vulnerability uh, in COVID for people of people of color uh, that are having uh, uh, being affected by COVID so much more? Yeah, I think that part of that, absolutely. I think part of it is um, simply that our society that was founded on genocide and slavery continues to require the um, forced exposure of brown and black people um, through what we call quote essential work. Um, so the people who with you know without whom the economy would completely collapse are largely brown and black people who are low to medium wage workers. Or in the case of agriculture, many of them have below low wages um, and they're in extremely um, precarious situations where their presence is threatened by immigration um, here in the United States. Um, and so what a very astute doctor in the 19, oh, sorry, in the 1840s um, determined, um, and he's now called the father of pathology in a long line of, you know, medical paternalisms. Um, his name was Rudolf Virchow, and he um, when he was 27 years old, was asked to go and study this outbreak of typhus in Upper Silesia, what is now uh, Poland and Czechia. Um, and in that time, that air, that whole zone was um, the, the kingdom of Prussia. And Prussia had gone and acquired these different parts of Europe. This Prussia is what preceded the German Empire. 
Um, so these people were functionally German-speaking elite and then Polish-speaking, um, you know, people who were being subjugated by Germany. Um, and so Virchow was ordered to go and, you know, look at this typhus outbreak and describe what could make it better. And so he came back and he said, well, what could make it better um, is that, you know, the people are being forced to speak German. They should speak their own languages. They are being forced to work in, you know, low-wage situations. You need to tax the rich and give the money to the poor. You need to create better roads. You need agricultural co-ops. You need, you know, he said all of the doctor's prescriptions for a typhus outbreak were social. Mm-hmm. He understood that the cause of the disease was not so much the bacteria. It was the social conditions that let the bacteria spread. Now, if you look at COVID, um, it's spreading in all the spaces of incarceration, whether it's the incarceration of our elders in nursing homes, the incarceration of um, brown and black people in prisons, the incarceration of um, undocumented folks in meatpacking facilities, the incarceration of low wage workers in Amazon um, fulfillment centers. All these spaces are spaces where people are not um, truly mobile um, because of socioeconomic forces or the literal cages that they're being put in. And so um, what Virchow said is that it's not the typhus bacteria that causes the disease or the inflammatory response. It's the body's reaction to that bacteria. And that body's reaction is preconditioned by all the social phenomena around the body. And so if we want to really look at how to heal the body, you can, you know, I can give you all the insulin you want, but why is diabetes going, why is diabetes becoming an epidemic through the world? Is it all of a sudden people are now just, you know, um, can't handle carbohydrates after, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. No, it's because the social conditions around the people are preconditioning an inflammatory response in the body. So inflammation is actually the body's most ancient mechanism to, to, to heal. Um, so when you get a cut, you have an uh, inflammatory response. Inflammation is the body's response to damage. And it is the mechanism through which that damage is repaired. What happens right now is that the damage continues and continues and continues. And the body is never given that opportunity to stop and repair. And so you get an inflammatory response that is running unabated. And that inflammatory situation, that inflammatory response is affecting every tissue in the human body. Um, What is so remarkable about this is that part of that social um, milieu that is impacting the body also includes the soil, also includes how we treat the earth and how we treat um, ourselves in the way that we work with the earth. Um, And that is where the connection with the microbiome is so fascinating. Um, It has not yet been completely elucidated how Our bodies are in connection, um, but that is probably the most exciting area of research because the microbes in our gut, when they are biodiverse and healthy, they counteract inflammation. Um, And so instead of simply, you know, then deciding to just pop a pill, how do we reconstruct our world around us to enhance not just the microbiomes of those who are wealthy or of a certain race, but of everybody? Um, and so that's what's, you know, exciting about thinking of food policy and um, food systems change that really uplifts our farmers and the people who are working the land, the farm workers, as truly stewards, as central stewards to our health. 
Um, And so that is, you know, another reason why what's happening in India is so exciting to me. You know, as you speak, it makes so much sense that you're also a musician because you're talking about harmony and uh, harmonious uh, life, <laughs> you know, well, production and consumption and the environment that uh, having an, an influence like that, it seems like, you know, everything is needs to be in, in harmony. Um, uh, anyway, it, it just that you do that and you spread your message too with even with music and you've been around the world performing and, and talking about this. But when you're, ad- when you're addressing creating harmony that results in a less inflammatory in- environment, um, I find myself wondering how you can apply that. You know, like if you know you're a farmer, you're you and your husband farm. And, and, and what does that mean to you? Uh, because, you know, it's one thing that seems to me like you could do, you could take a certain approach to what you grow and what you're consuming and so forth. But for some people, they also have to reach a certain scale to be able to, to bring in uh, adequate income uh, to, to be able to live on too. So how, how do you accomplish that kind of harmony? That's a great, these are great questions. So for us, and it's not to say that what we're doing is, you know, the answer to everything, but we experiment. And what we are doing right now is we are working with um, our indigenous community to give land back to them and to work in partnership to farm land that is in their holding. Um, and so that sort of disrupts this concept that, you know, farmers are land wealthy, but cash poor, right? So it takes that economic structure and flips it. And then for us, what we're very interested in is liberating food from the market economy. So how do we stop treating food like a commodity and start treating it like an essential human right and a need? And how do we start responding to the hunger of our communities right now, especially with COVID? with um, responding with the adequate um, response, which is healthy food, not simply food grown that has maybe a higher burden of pesticides, which we know also disrupts the gut microbiome. Um, So for example, um, glyphosate, uh, Roundup, which has been said to be safe for human um, consumption or animal consumption, because it interrupts an enzymatic pathway that only exists in plants and microbes and fungi. It doesn't exist in those, um, the shikimate pathway that glyphosate interrupts does not exist in human cells. However, when the glyphosate interrupts that pathway in microbes, it means that the microbes that are in the soil get disrupted. And then the microbes that are in the gut. So glyphosate interrupts the, the disrupts the gut of um, the honeybee. It disrupts the gut of rats when they've tested that in the lab, it's disrupted the um, balance of the soil microbes. And so we're actually cultivating pathogens in the soil right now. We're cultivating human pathogens in the soil, such as Clostridium difficile, which we've seen in the hospital is this, you know, very scary multi-drug resistant um, organism, which we used to think was just being brought about by over-exuberant use of antibiotics by doctors. But what we're finding is that it's, you know, actually the community cases are much higher in farming communities. 
Um, part of that is probably from the antibiotic use in the feed lots. Um, but then you have to look at things like practices like putting something that is, you know, eliminating a bunch of beneficial bacteria um, onto all that soil. And so how do we, you know, tend our soil in a way that will be um, actually enhancing of our own health so that we don't, you know, create these imbalances. So for us, that means farming um, in a way that is um, based in agroecological principles. Um, it means that as we work with the soil, um, we're not just working to extract from it, we're working to enhance our relationship to it. Um, and that we see long-term engagement um, with systems as, um, as our benefit. And so for us, we are working with cities um, around um, the, uh, the, the benefits that, that we're doing with our farming, both from a climate perspective, from a health perspective, from a racial justice perspective, and from a food justice perspective. And so these are things that I feel like um, we can do with reframing farming as a, a service, an ecological service. So if our farmers and farm workers tended our soil and water for the benefit, not just of their food extraction, but of the whole um, society and planet, mm -hmm. then they, they would be uplifted the way I am as a doctor. Wow. Um, so how can our farmers be then um, supported in their ecological tending? Um, so that their bottom line isn't simply just all they produce and extract, but also um, it's also impacted by how they tend, how they take care. Um, and so that will require a restructuring of our policies. And, and that's why we have great people like Nina Ichikawa at the Berkeley Food Institute and policy people like Raj Patel, um, who've been trying to imagine ways that we could liberate food and food systems so that we're not um, simply, you know, turning everything that we do into a commodity, but we can reimagine it as a system of care. Um, and so that's how that's how we've been operating and that's how we'll continue to operate. And it's been a wonderful wild road and we hope to publish some of our work as we have more findings that we can share with people. Um, but it's been, you know, I'm I'm very excited about this this next phase of farming with our Ramatushaloni friends. That's going to be um, an, another level of healing, um, which we're very excited about. Well, one other thing I want to touch on real quick, and that is the effect uh, towards climate change, because you've you've said too that the end result of all of this, this the, the inflammatory effect and and the decolonization, while it's necessary, what colonization has caused is that it leads to what we're experiencing right now with with climate change. Uh, I hate to be introducing one more great big giant concept, but how do you where does it fit? Where does it fit when people can relate to doing what you're saying and what's going on with the climate, with the earth? Well, um, when the indigenous people of the world were, have been and continue to be and are removed from the lands that they've tended for thousands of years, from the forests that they've tended, um, it is not a surprise to have ecological disruption um, because Indigenous people tend the most biodiversity on the planet. So over 80% of the biodiversity on the entire planet is tended by less than 5% of the population, which is Indigenous people. And the more we push them into or dispossess them of their lands, um, the more we lose this critical knowledge on how to tend that biodiversity. 
What is wild is that not only do indigenous people tend the most biodiversity around them, they also tend the most biodiversity inside them. So the diseases of inflammation we see in modern society actually don't exist in, in indigenous people who are living their traditional ways. So if you look at the Hadza gatherers of Tanzania, you look at the Yanomami in um, the Amazon, there's several tribal people in India um, who are living in traditional ways um, in eating traditional foods and in their um, managed ecosystems. They don't have cardiovascular disease. They don't have cancer. They don't have Alzheimer's the disease. They don't have hypertension. They don't have diabetes at the alarming rates that we do. They might have low, low, low rates of these diseases, but nothing at all like what we see. They don't have inflammatory bowel disease. And an example of this is, for example, in Africa and West Africa, you compare um, you know, this one bacteria that we say causes stomach cancer, H. pylori um, is a bacteria that in the, in the United States, if you have H. pylori, you have a higher risk of having peptic ulcer disease and gastric cancer. Well, H. pylori is um, all over the place in Africa and the rates of gastric cancer are exceedingly low. Um, so it's not that, you know, a bacteria causes the problem. It's the whole balance of not just ecosystems, but the social systems that are driving these kinds of uh, kinds of diseases. So I think that, yes, uh, climate collapse is caused by colonial systems that have forcibly removed indigenous people from their homes mm -hmm. and from their practices. And so in order to make meaningful change to improve where we are right now, we have to start from the spot of giving land back. We have to start from a place of allowing um, a healing to happen so that we can work together with our indigenous communities and understand what are the best ways to grow foods in these regions? What are the ways to heal these disruptions? How do we take care of the salmon so that amazing phosphorus pump can come back up through our valleys and our, um, and our rivers in California? How do we um, get back into balance with our ecosystems? And it will require a reimagining of land use. It will require a reimagining of land ownership. Um, but those are all things that need to come up for um, examination. And that's that's what this moment is going to require. Well, one thing I want to ask you about, and then we'll wrap up because you've got to write a book for crying out loud. The And, and that is there are many areas, certainly of North America, where indigenous people have been gone for 200 years. Unfortunately, they were there at one time. They're not there at all now. But you still have uh, farmers in those areas that uh, I think buy into the rest of your message and would like to, to figure out a way that they can both make a living and create the kind of harmonies that you're suggesting. Do you have any ideas or thoughts for those, those folks that they, they don't happen to have the advantage of a connection of being next to um, uh, indigenous groups that, uh, as you do in the, in the area that you're in, they're in an the area there's no one, no one close and hasn't been for 200 years. What can you do? Well, well for example, uh, Jonathan Cardero is uh, Ramatishaloni tribal chair for um, for a long time, they thought the Ramatush were extinct. Um, there were no Ramatush Ohlone people. The whole San Francisco Peninsula is technically Ramatush Ohlone land. And um, 10 years ago, Jonathan, who is a scholar of native Californian history, 
traced his heritage on, um, you know, along his family tree and found he was in fact related to um, one of the great, great grandmothers um, or great, great, great grandmothers. Uh, and so how do we, um, to be indigenous in this land means to be hunted. In California, there was an act of genocide paid for by the state of California to murder indigenous people and to remove them from their land so that Europeans could settle it, farm it, and, um, and extract gold. And so um, I don't know if I believe you totally when you say, oh, well, there's some farmers who just live in places where there are no indigenous people, because I've been all over this land and everywhere I go, I've met indigenous people. And so I think that there is a myth that people aren't there. And that's not true. They're, they're still here. And a lot of them are suffering from trauma. And a lot of them have hidden their identities because they were killed for being Indian. They were, um, their cultures have been smashed um, systematically by um, by this civilization. And so I would say, start the process of learning whose territory you are in and learning where those people are today. Um, who's there? Find out who's there. And then seeing what kind of novel partnerships you can create. Um, maybe it's giving your land back. Maybe it's creating a land trust with a bunch of other farmers and removing your land from a... Um, you know, private property ownership model. Maybe it's entering a cooperative um, with farmers and indigenous people, but it's gonna be creating new culture. It's not just simply following the same, you know, line of culture. Um, and this is a challenging time for that. What is what is amazing about farmers and why I put my faith in terms of marrying a farmer, which wasn't the best, let's say, economic choice of my life, um, but truly the best choice of my life in this moment, because farmers are the most generative people I've ever met, generative and generous people I've ever met. And by that, I mean, people who know how to um, work the magic of putting um, life into the ground and, and generating food, and then generating culture around that and community around that. So there is so much um, power in farmers. Um, in terms of being the, the heart and soul of our food system, what nurtures and nourishes all of us. And that, I think, is um, where people can rest assured that we'll be okay. Um, even if the economics don't all pan out in the first, you know, um, moment, or you can't see it in that moment, um, as we stretch our imaginations, as we awaken our imaginations as to what is possible in imagining another food system, we'll be okay. You've given us a lot to think about today. So, Dr. Rupa Maria, thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you so much. You take care, Roger. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 